Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. I am here today with Bill Blair. So, Bill, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Lisa, how are you? I'm well. So good to talk to you. Great. Yeah, I'm Bill Blair. For all those that may or may not have met me in person or even heard of me, uh, I go by the name is also my website, Alien Actor, which is alienactor.com. I've got several decades in the TV, movie, and entertainment industry. I hold the Guinness World Record for the most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career, which basically this was Guinness's choice of title. It was a brand new title. They did not have anybody uh, under something like this before. Uh, There's a bit of a story that goes behind that we can talk about in a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's uh, just just me. you may not have heard from me or heard of much of me because I'm not a marquee name. You don't see my name very often in the credits, but I love being a part of the supporting cast and shows and making everybody else look good. So if you're in a show and you want somebody to make you look good, give me a call. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So let's, let's start with that story. You've got the Guinness world record is most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career. So you are not only the first person to hold this honor, but you basically invented the character, or the category, but you basically invented yeah. the category after being invited by the Guinness people to submit. So tell us that story. Right. Yeah. Um, for years I had been, you know, my first special effect makeup character professionally outside of Halloween and parties was uh, portraying Mr. Spock and a live stage show for the Oracle Software Company back in the mid-late 1980s. And it was really fun to do. I mean, we had three stages set up at the front of this convention center for a huge Oracle Software Conference. And we had three astronaut cosmonauts off to the right stage. We had Star Wars characters off to the left. And, of course, center stage was Star Trek. We had a Captain Kirk and a Hura, and yours truly is Mr. Spock. And I, in this particular case, I refused to wear the elf ears that came with the Spock costumes back then. So I went to the makeup store, got some nose and scar putty and some little white fibrous materials, mixed it all together, and literally molded Vulcan ears onto my own so that we, I knew we were going to be going into the audience later at the end of the show and I didn't want people making fun of the plastic or, you know, fake ears because I knew people would want to touch them. And sure enough, they did. And the, it was fun listening to the remarks of people as I walked by. My God, they are real. <laughs> uh, because I had I had smoothed the edges down and they had that cartilage type of texture to it, mm-hmm. um, like your normal ears do. That was my first major uh special effect character. And then leaving Dallas, ending up in Los Angeles, uh, I found myself just doing regular TV shows, cop shows, dramas, and everything else. And then while I was working on Demolition Man, I happened to meet a very well-known special effects makeup artist that was looking for 
a teaching subject, I guess we could call it. Somebody he could work on while he teaches other people how to do makeup. And a couple of weeks after working with him, I got a call from casting and I had been requested to work on this TV movie of Alien Nation. And from there, I ended up on Babylon 5, from there on Star Trek. And along the way, a few people said, how many have you really done? I said, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I have fun with it. I get to work a lot and I don't burn my face out. I can be on other shows and people think I'm a brand brand new face on TV or in the movies. Uh, but as time went on, it just became more and more evident that I was adding up quite a few of these. And somebody finally convinced me that I should look it up and, you know, see if I've done more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. So I did. I, I went to the web, you know, thank goodness for the internet, which back in the 80s when I did my first character, computers were so in their infant stages. But now we're into the, the late uh, 90s, into the early 2000s, and uh, it was starting to add up. And by 2007, I actually got serious and went online and didn't find anything. So the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, who who holds the numbers for people who've done the most stuff here and there or fastest or whatever? I found the Guinness World Record website, and they have this little button on there that says, make an inquiry, which is the English way of saying ask a question. And so I clicked on it. I typed my question about, you know, I was looking through and didn't really find anything about people who have done monsters and creatures like Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi and Ron Chapman, all these people have done these classic monsters throughout the years. I actually asked them, uh, do you have a record of anybody doing this? And within a couple of weeks, they wrote back to me and said, no, we actually don't have a category like this. Would you please submit? And that's really as, as simple as it was. And I wrote back and said, sure, how? And they said, well, we'll need six weeks or so to get you the official information because we have to go through the lawyers and all the legal official stuff, and we'll send you the guidelines. Uh, I said, fine. And so it's not like there was any rush because it took me the next three years to pull all of my work records, all of my videos. I fortunately had, uh, back in those days, videotape, I recorded off live television all the episodes of Babylon 5 that I'd worked on a few episodes of Star Trek here and there, other shows that I had been on. And along with my work records, um, I was able to go through and put down on a Excel spreadsheet everything that I had done. And I decided to be as detailed as possible. So I got the uh, date that uh, I actually worked on the show, which was the filming date. And then I also put in the broadcast date, the uh, name of the show, the title of the episode, if it was TV, uh, what the character was in the scene, an approximate time code based on whether it was a videotape or a DVD at the time. And then in the end, after following all their rules, which was I had to send in printed copies of every character, and I had to also include a DVD of the clips that I uh, compiled and it all had to fit within one hour. So that meant when I was done, I had to show 202 of the different characters that they accepted all within one hour of a DVD uh, video, which meant of 202, you figured each clip didn't last more than like five seconds. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
as it just kept running through. And yeah, in uh, 2000, uh, I can't remember now. Yeah, 2011, um, I did what was I thought my final submission, which they also require two letters of authentication of somebody uh, not associated that would profit from the uh, authenticating something like, you know, uh, your own teammate on a sports team saying you did something and then they can, you know, piggyback on that or something. This is why they always suggest get the mayor of the town, a clergyman, a local businessman, somebody completely disjointed, not connected to what you were doing. That's a little difficult in this industry. And they only, they only requested two, but I said over a span of 15 years, there isn't even two people that would have seen me in all of this stuff. So I compiled about 12 or 13 of these letters that each one was unique to the person signed by them. And it was everybody from assistant directors to makeup artists, to wardrobe people, to the hair, hair people that put the wigs on me. Uh, I think one was a couple of directors, you know, that actually filled them out, camera people who were actually on the other side watching me and knew it was me. Uh, and yeah, even I think one or two fellow actors who had been around for most everything I did. And of course, uh, my one makeup artist who you've met, Carl, right. um, he's followed me. He, uh, he had followed me so much since the late 1990s. Uh, he's the guy that can recognize me in anything. So all I had to do was send him the DVDs or clips. And he said, yep, that one's you, that one's you, that one's you, that one's you, without me even telling him. Um, so, yeah, I sent in those 12 or 13 letters. And within a week or so after that, I get the email from them that says, basically, congratulations. You know, this is great. You know, we'll be sending your certificate out to you. Uh and then I turned that around and we had a really nice ceremony in front of the Guinness World Record Museum on Hollywood Boulevard that uh, that October where the curator at the Hollywood uh, Guinness World Record Museum formally presented me with the certificate. And we had a nice little PR uh, party and everything else. Oh, fun. So that's, that's really the whole story. <laughs> yeah. What an interesting process. So how many, so if you were at 202 in 2011, how, where are you now in that? How many have you portrayed at this point? It's unofficial by any means, um, but my rough count without going back into any more records and pulling them out individually. And because it is now the category of in a career, which means even the live shows that I do, if it's got any, if there's any publicity to it, like news, uh, any kind of periodical magazines come out and cover it. Uh, if I'm on a, you know, a video, uh, podcast type thing during the convention, for example, or a live performance, a live event, those count as well. So my rough count now is somewhere around 220. That's a lot of different aliens. Yeah. So you've done so yep. much of this and you've been so successful because you're good at it. So what makes you successful at portraying aliens on screen? Well, I think from one of the things that the original makeup artist that chose me to be his teaching subject, um, I'm graced with being thin uh, and a long thin face with 
very definite bone structure to my face, which allows the prosthetics to lay nicely. And they can use a lot of different things. In other words, it's very difficult, for example, to make a round ball look like a two by four piece of wood thin. But you can take a thin two by four and you can build it up to make it look like a round ball. That makes sense. So by by, by having the facial structure that I do, similar to our, our common friend, Doug Jones, who has done so much wonderful stuff over the years. He's also one of those with a very thin body and very thin, angular, um, great bone structure uh, from the neck up. And it's one of those, those are the things that, you know, just classically these things work well with. And then from that, other than that, it's just, I've always been a very animated type of person, even, you know, just standing in a crowd uh, when I'm enjoying myself and I'm feeling comfortable in my space. Yeah, I, I'm just the kid inside, and I'll dance around, jump around. Uh, and when you're in this kind of special effects makeup and you're in some really odd type of costuming and clothing, you, if you're not animated in it, you're always going to look like you're just standing still or you're going to look like stiff as a board. I remember one episode of Star Trek when I was a Jemadar, and there were several others on set as Jemadar in this episode. And our supervisor uh, makeup, Michael Westmore, was wandering through. And he walked by all the Gemindar and said, hey, guys, remember, you're not robots. You're not stiff. You can turn your neck, every, you know, just be fluid. And these are, the things, these are the reminders because you get into such heavy costume and it feels so weighted down and it's heavy. You hardly feel like you can move and you have to make that extra effort. It's like football players. They've got those shoulder pads on. You know, and yet some of them are so athletic, you know, they can turn and twist and catch those passes and fall and twist and get away from tackles. Well, it's the same kind of thing with a lot of this heavy costuming and sometimes very heavy makeup that we wear. We have to remember, like with the Cardassian shoulder pieces that go from the back of the neck all the way down the trapezius into the shoulders. And those are glued on solidly. You almost feel like, oops, I can't move. I've got something restricting me there. You have to remember, no, as the character, as a Cardassian, that is just our normal bone structure. You would move about just as if it was second nature. You don't even think about it. So, yeah, you kind of put things out of your mind and just think, yeah, I can do this. I can turn. I can twist. You know, I can bend over as far as the costume would let me. It's like as a board, those things are so tight. You can barely move, and you have to have a completely different persona, different attitude towards what that character is, because it's even though the Jem'Hadar are a manufactured race, they are not at all as robotic as the Borgar, and you have to be able to separate those as the actor. So you're looking at aliens in really a different way. You have to think about how their movement and how their personalities even are sort of affected by their structure and and conversely, how their culture and what we know about their culture would affect how they move. Is that is that part of your process or am I just making that up? No, 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 that's very much a part. It's like, just like every every human, every person that's born lives and dies. Everybody says, well, you're just like so-and-so. Well, not really. 
they may appear or they may have certain little traits or likes and dislikes, but each person is unique and different. Every alien race, every monster, every creature that I ever put on has to have a difference in it. Even if where I played different Klingons, I played different Cardassians, I played different Jem'Hadars, I played a Borg, go to Babylon 5, the different uh, types, there's three casts of Minbari on Babylon 5. You've got the warrior, the religious, the I'm sorry, the warrior, the religious, and the worker cast. And then on top of that, you had the rangers. And every one of those has to have a different approach, a different personality, just like the human race. And so every day when I, I get into something, it's like, okay, which one am I today? And this is what people think, you know, those that are in the background, those that, that most people refer to as extras, whether it's a background, extra, a bit part, a feature part, we may not have lines. But I'll tell you what, have you ever played charades? Right, yeah. How much is it to try to communicate just through body language, hand motions and everything, a simple title of a song, a movie, or whatever it is, without using your voice? And the the depth and richness that the background characters bring into their work is what makes these worlds so compelling, I think. It's what makes the whole scene work. I mean, if you're just one or two characters in an office, like you've got Cisco and Major Kira just having a conversation in his office, that's one thing. But you get down to that promenade and you've just got the main characters walking back and forth through there and maybe an occasional Klingon or Cardassian with nothing else. I mean, think about what your local airport would look like. It, it looked like that during the pandemic and what everybody was thinking. It was dead. No life. Nothing to feel that anything was happening. You've got to have all the characters, all the parts and the pieces. And if each character was the same, every alien was actually the same and walked the same, had the exact same expression on their face like a robot, even the Borg, each one had a little bit different, whether it was the eyepiece, the mechanical prosthetic arm or something. Not only that, there was something about each individual Borg's facial expression that allowed you to feel a little something towards them, even though they were a hated race for the most part until we um, met Hugh. But yes, the whole, what I'm trying to say here is that yes, one of the things that worked well for me is that, yes, I was a good player at charades. I was a good player at being a pantomime uh, artist. I could sit down at a table at a restaurant, never say a word, and everybody in the audience could tell what was going on with my dinner and my companion without saying a word. And that's the art of doing a lot of these aliens. Can you do the character without dialogue first? Then when you add the words, it gets simple. Well, I, I think I sometimes had the harder part than the actors that were really with all the dialogue. Yeah, because like you said, in charades, you're working to convey meaning without the crutch of words. Imagine everybody sit, standing around the Dabo table, just standing there, just casually spinning and just picking up money and no emotion, no excitement, no personality to what they're doing. You might as well just put some cardboard cutouts. 
yeah, absolutely. This thing would be dead. And that is not how it is. And we enjoy these worlds because they're brought to life. Now, granted, a, a funeral, you might want a few deadpan people and just standing around and not doing much. It goes that way, too. It's everything from the funeral to the absolute greatest, funnest party you could ever imagine. Everything in between that has. And an assistant director from Star Trek once wrote to me. He said, yeah, the reason I had you there so much is I could always count on you to be so creative with whatever we put you in. That was one of the best compliments a, a director, assistant director ever paid to me. Yeah, that's a great compliment. One of the most fun stories from Deep Space Nine, because I'd always worn alien character makeups. We were doing one episode. It was during the uh, series that included Rocks and Shoals. It was when Cisco and Dax and everybody were going to take this Jemadar ship that they had acquired back to the Jemadar homeworld and all sorts of other stuff was going to happen. Well, the one day before all of that was supposed to happen on the Jemadar ship, um, I just happened over here the director, assistant director, whatever it was, saying, you know, we're going to need another Starfleet crew member on board, basically is what they were talking about. But they didn't want to burn one of their regular Star Trek background characters because all the costumes on Star Trek were custom fit, mm -hmm. except for me. Because they looked at me and they said, well, why don't we just use Bill? We'll never see his face again anyway. <laughs> and that was what was true. So it was actually to my benefit. I got an extra day or two worth of work that I wouldn't have otherwise. And yeah, I went in the next day. And because I am somewhat of a generic fit, which answers more of your question earlier, why I got to work so much, and what was it to my benefit? And all of this is I was relatively a generic size. They could find somebody else that was even close to me. I would wear their, I wore their uniform for these this day or day and a half or whatever it was we were shooting on board the Jemadar ship and was all said and done. They got their uniform back and my face was never seen again on Deep Space Nine. So you've got the, the roles that you have played with your face and the roles that you have played without your face. Yes. And the same thing similar on, on Enterprise. Most of, the, most of my episodes on Enterprise were of one form or another of Vulcan. And then one episode near the end of fourth, coming up to the end of the fourth and final season, director, uh, acquaintance, friend of mine was on the show directing. And he put a special request. And sure enough, I ended up on that episode again as a Starfleet crewman in one scene. It was just fun for him. And he knew that this would be one of the times it's like, okay, let's see his face for a change. And, um, it was, you know, I don't know how many people are, um, familiar with the backstory of the, uh, Deep Space Nine episode of Who Mourns for Mourn. Let's pretend that the people listening are not, and you can tell it to us. <laughs> well, most people know Mark Allen Shepard is the one who plays the character of Mourn. Mm -hmm. And if you ever have him on this show, you should ask him how he got that part of Mourn. It's a very, very interesting story. And it will probably take up almost your entire showtime. <laughs> but the part I will just tell you is that the behind the scenes of this is in the episode of Who Mourns for Mourn. When Cork comes up and puts his arm around a young gentleman and leads him to Morn's seat and basically says, let's always keep his seat warm. That's actually Mark Allen Shepard out of the Morn makeup and character. So the, the behind the scenes is the actual guy sitting down in the chair in this episode is really Morn. 
Oh, that's funny. But without the makeup. That was that was the inside story, the behind the scenes little trivia of, you know, doing something fun like that. Because that's at great. that point nobody had ever seen who Mark Allen Shepherd really was. And without knowing it, they now know who's actually playing Morn. And this that story has gotten around a lot of conventions and everything and in into the trivia on Wikipedia and things like that. But yeah, there may be a few that had never heard that. So there you go. And so now, you know, there's an episode you can watch, literally can watch for me when I'm not in makeup on Deep Space Nine and another one on uh, Enterprise. I actually was never on Next Generation. I interviewed half a dozen times for that series, but was never fortunate enough to get picked for that one. But yeah, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Enterprise, I had a good run with those three, plus the uh, web fan film of uh, Star Trek New Voyages Phase 2. Do you have a favorite science fiction universe? I wouldn't say a favorite. I've got a lot of things I like about each. Star Trek, still the classic. Even uh, George Lucas admits that Star Trek influenced him for Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Star Trek has got, always had, in the beginning at least, you know, lots of stories to tell. The, The barriers they tried to break down, there were stories they weren't even allowed to basically show on TV that they wanted to. I like what Star Trek stood for. But on the other hand, I probably identify more with the Babylon 5 universe and the way the story was told, at least in its little four to five year story arc, the way it was set up. It, uh, to me, was more connected with what's going on even today with the way countries and other political parties just go against each other constantly. And um, I like the concept of the one station where everything happened pretty much. Yeah. Towards the end, we ventured off into drowsy worlds and uh, Narn regimes and the Centauri. Well, we would venture out into those, those worlds every once in a while, but over 90% of the show took place right on that station. And so everything was so intertwined and, the characters relating to each other so much. So I've got a lot of personal feelings and ties to the Babylon five universe. And I, you know, but I like so much the star Trek having started it all for the most part in modern times and the stories they tried to tell uh, and the things that would happen that, uh, and, and yeah, it was really like Gene Ronberry's, like he said, it was wagon train to the stars. It was the idea of visiting so many different cultures, so many different seeking out those, you know, other creations and beings that live out there in the universe that in our galaxy, that it allows so much imagination. So the Babylon 5 grounded more to Earth and reality of that versus the true science fiction fantasy at the time, technology of everything, the possibilities that are, that exist out there in the galaxy. And let's face it. Yeah. Um, Star Trek, you know, our early flip phones, you know, we're like the communicators, you know, our tablets look a lot like the next generation pads that they were using. You know, even, even grocery store doors didn't open on their own when the original series. I mean, so much technology we saw it on on star trek first mm-hmm, exactly and so you know favorites no but i'm very drawn to those two 
in equally in different ways. Were you a fan of science fiction before you started acting as a costumed alien? I've always been a fan of possibilities, fan of what if. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I watched Star Trek when it first came on in the late, mid, late 60s. And unlike some people who identified with certain characters of the show, like I know so many people identified with Spock, so many identified with Kirk, you know, um, seeing or her as character on TV in a position of authority, a lot of young ladies were drawn to that. Um, I was drawn to just the effects, the science effects of things, um, how they made the ship look like it would fly through space and it looked the reality of it. Like if you were to look at the first episode, which most of us didn't see early on unless you went to a convention, was to actually see the episode, The Cage, in its entirety as an episode not broken up with the menagerie parts one and two. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of my first introductions. My brother and I went to a Star Trek convention. I believe it was back in 71 or 72. So and the first one. Yes, and they actually showed a black and white copy of The Cage at that convention. We, it was just like, you know, movie hour. And for, for the 45, 50 minutes, we sat there and we watched that whole episode. So it was like, oh, so that's what it looks like when it's all put together. Um, and even then, I, I noticed the difference. See, when I say the science fiction part of it, the special effects, I immediately noticed the difference between how the opening of that show and the special effects of the ship flying through was so rudimentary compared to what they finally came up with for the when the series originally aired. And I, that's the things that I was watching all the time. It's like, could I see that little gap between the phaser and the special effects of the beam of the laser coming out and when it would stop? And I would ask the question, okay, when you shoot somebody on a ship with a phaser, how come it doesn't go right through them and through the hull of the ship? Eventually, certain people found answers to that down the road. But so that's how I was attracted to science fiction, because I was a fan of special effects, even in high school theater. I didn't I really didn't do on stage characters as much as I worked behind the scenes as stage manager, special effects, set design, set construction, lighting and sound. And that I was always trying to figure out, like, in Finian's rainbow, how to, you know, I learned from our, our um, physics teacher at the time, how to put the magnesium and the sulfates and stuff together to make our little flash pots and how to make them colors. That stuff fascinated me. And I had fun with the lighting. I could design the lights and I could, I could make this side of the stage come up one side and the other side still be completely dark. And that's what trans transcended into the science fiction, because now here was another whole world of special effects that I was just going to be growing into as I got older. Which loops back to your story about your first character, where you just made the ears yourself because you wanted them to be better than what came with the costume. Right. I'd seen elf ears before, and I'm sorry, even the first, again, episodes of Star Trek, they were still tweaking Spock's ears. Mm -hmm. You can watch through the first season how they change from time to time. You know, and they learn very quickly, no, shaving eyebrows is not a good idea, you know, just to make certain eyebrows. So that's why whenever we were on later on down the road, they developed these eyebrow covers. 
very, very thin pieces of latex that we could cover your natural eyebrows with, and then we could just glue on whatever eyebrows we want over top of that. Although I don't think Groucho Marx ever really worried about that. He had the signature eyebrows that everybody just recognized him from. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really was learning. And had I not had some of that uh, training from high school theater and playing around with my own Halloween character costumes, I wouldn't have even had the first clue of I would have probably just worn the ears that came with the costume and not known the difference. Uh, I'm glad I did have that background and it paid off for the show because, you know, you, you go up and you feel these hollow little pieces of latex rubber on somebody's head and it's going to go, oh, yeah, they're just those elf ears you get now. I actually had a lot of people fooled. That's fantastic. And as, as an actor, we as an actor, we try to convince the audience we are that character. Yeah, embody the illusion. So uh, acting isn't your only creative talent. You've also written a book called The Professional's Talent Handbook, The Guide to Getting Started. What is the best piece of advice you have for people who want to be professionals doing something similar to what you do? Well, the reason I wrote that book is exactly the answer to your question is most people in a creative industry, whether it be art as in painting, photography versus you know, you as the product, which is a model, an actor or something. It's not the creative side that gets you really where you want to be. It's treating it like a business. As I later on, which if I ever write a second edition to that book, I always, when I was doing seminars and coaching, I would remind people when you're an artist, when you're a creative type and you're trying to get into this industry, you have to think of yourself as a production company of one. Not only are you the product, but you're also the director, the producer, the creative consultant, you're the writer, you're the makeup artist, you're the hairstylist, all rolled into one. And so you need all those aspects and you need to know what each one of them does. It's like when you're on a TV show, the cameraman doesn't go out and uh, paint the sets. He has that one specific job and that's what he does. If you're a model, yeah. If you're in a, if you get to be in a show, you've got somebody else that comes and does your hair, does your makeup, puts the perfect clothes on you, whether you're male or female, but you're the one that has to be able to know how to walk out there and sell that. So you are a salesman, saleswoman, salesperson, whatever your choice um, of yourself. You are a product. So if you think of yourself in terms of a product and what's going to get people to buy you, so to that extent, you have to have a business head. You have to be the secretary, you, you know, answer your calls, have a good phone voice, have a good approach, be articulate. Back in the day when I actually wrote that book in 1986, there were no such things as cell phones. We were barely even up to the days of pagers starting to come into being. Mm-hmm. So back then it was all about answering machines, paper and pencil, Rolodex. You had to have your office. And you had to know how to budget because you're going to have to invest in yourself like like the president of a company. You're going to need headshots. You're going to need a demo reel if you're going to do live action. You've got to budget money to keep yourself looking good. So for the girls, that's unfortunately a bigger investment with makeup, hair. For guys, not so much. You might want to invest in a gym to where you have a place to discipline yourself to make sure you stay in shape to get to the point where you want. So when you're out on that runway as a model, you can stand up straight. You can walk with grace and ease and not make it look hard. 
when I used to teach the modeling to young men, I actually showed the young men what it would look like if they were actually wearing makeup. I would make up half of their face. I would be the makeup artist back then for them as a casual everyday makeup. And I would show them the difference between one side of their face and the other. Now TikTok and all these other Facebook applications are doing exactly what I did 40 years ago mm-hmm. for people. Show them what they look like if their faces were smoothed out. One of my students one time decided he was going to do the other half of his face after class and go out. He said he never had so many girls hit on him in one evening. It's like, yeah, but that was not all that. It was the confidence that it gave you as the way you now perceive yourself. And that's the other, the key is confidence. You have to be able to project that professional attitude. Yeah. Yeah. There's, if you talk about painters and you talk about the musicians, like I was a musician and played in bands when I was coming out of high school and through college and even after college, we'd have a certain persona when we were on stage. But when we're not on stage, we had to act with a business mind. For example, a friend will go see a friend perform before they will go see a stranger perform. Right. You fill up more theater seats because of friends and family than people just walking off the streets because it sounds like a good title that they would like that would interest them or a log line on the on the billboard. So the business of, of acting, the business of entertainment is making connections and then nurturing those connections. Make them your friend. Don't sell yourself short. Don't sell yourself out. Keep your pride. Unfortunately, a lot of people, we all heard about the casting couch. It was short-lived success. Don't go that route. You don't need it. You need the professional attitude of, hey, I'm a product. You want to buy me. You go in, when you go to an interview, it's like a job interview but your interview might be what we call an audition. When you get on camera, you've got to be able to stand up straight. You've got to be able to look into that camera and know that that is the person that is going to buy what you are selling, whether it be an idea, a product, or a character. This reminds me a lot of uh, the Stephen Pressfield War of Art books where he talks about treating your art like it's a profession and working at it and looking at, you know, the ways to be serious about how do you always improve yourself and treating it like a job. So many people think of art as not a discipline, right? You're waiting for your muse, you're waiting for your inspiration, but the people who do it successfully, like you're talking about, tend to be the ones who treat it as a discipline, treat it as just a professional thing they are doing. And even the creative things can happen to to the artist. Whether, again, whether it's a, a writer, a painter, a photographer, an actor, a model, it's all part of the creative arts, a musician. Every once in a while, you're going to have that moment. It's like you hit a wall. Writer's block is what they call it in that side. A photographer that just can't seem to get the right composition. You've got the, you've got the subject but you just don't seem to get your lens right. You can't, you just don't sense what the, what the lighting should be. That's an instinctive thing. There are very few, you can teach the technical, you can teach the professional, the business side of it, but yes, the creative, the inspiration, the instinct, the natural sense of things, that's what comes from inside. And you need times to go back and find that. 
because you can get caught up in the business of it. And then you lose track and simply stated you forget how to be a kid as an actor, as a musician or something. You forget how to have fun with it. And that's the most important part is you have to be professional. You want to, you want to be on the ball, but when it comes to the art and the creativity of it, don't forget that little inner child of you because that is where the spark comes from. That's where you came from, where you grew from. It's almost a paradox that you have to have the discipline to give yourself the space to find the spontaneity. Right. Very interesting. So you mentioned that you have musical talent as well. You were in a band uh, called Expression in the 80s, and you were the leader of the band. Does that mean you sing? Yes. Uh, the the band Expression was uh, my own band after several others before it. Uh, most musicians were never just one single band. They all came from someplace else growing up. Uh, prior to my own band of Expression, um, I had been in two national recording acts in the uh, late 70s and early 80s and then took off on my own. I sang, I played keyboards, I also played some guitar, bass. About the only thing I didn't play on stage was the drums. I just never could get the four-limb coordination. If I just had to do a basic two-four backbeat, um, like the old, you know, hard rock and roll, you know, days of 50, 1950s, early 60s, where it was just a straight bass drum and a snare and a hi-hat kind of a thing all the way through early Ringo Starr. Um, yeah, I was, I could, I was fine, but by the time in the, in the eighties, it was definitely seventies and eighties. It had definitely evolved a lot, um, double basses and other things. So I let the drums go, but I could play just about every other instrument that was necessary on stage, uh, for performing. Um, our band played a wide variety of, of music. We were not just rock and roll. Uh, we were on a hotel lounge kind of circuit. Uh, we did some shows, we did floor shows where we covered everything from big band music to classics like Sinatra and everything to, at the time, Blondie, The Police, Billy Joel, Doobie Brothers, so what's just whatever was popular. Of, so what's your favorite kind of music? What is your favorite kind my, of music to play? My favorite kind of music to play um, was what I would call dance music with a show style. And one of the, one of the interesting ones we did back in the sixties, uh, Richard Harrison did a song called MacArthur park later on was re, uh, re-recorded in a different style by Donna summer. I love that Donna summer version because in my arrangement, we would start it off with the very slow, very classic Richard Harris, uh, Rex Harrison type, version which richard harris or rex harris i'm right now it skips me but then we would kick it into the disco 1970s version of donna summer and it was just so much fun to play um and then of course the uh the classic rock of the doobie brothers and uh bruce springsteen uh the 70s and 80s it was just to me it was so much fun um I grew up on the three chord songs of, you know, Elvis and the Beach Boys and all sorts of things like that. But um, I love to arrange things that 
came off the stage with more of a show than just playing what you would hear on the radio. So you uh, shifted away from music after a serious injury. Is that a story that you like to tell? Or that you that you're willing uh, to tell? It, 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 it really it, it's a story that, that talks about my transition from uh, from music into the modeling and acting world. Uh, we were on tour, if you want to call it that. We were traveling and we were out in Montana um, at a nightclub uh, in Copper Country, as we called it. Back in 1981, we had a two week contract at this one club. And we had Sunday off. And so we took the day to go see Yellowstone and Old Faithful. Never been there before. And lo and behold, we were up at 7,000 feet and coming around this one mountain pass curve. And we were, our, the drummer was driving his van. And uh, somebody came around in a Chevy Blazer and hit the black ice and slid head on into us. And it wiped out the drummer lead singer myself. Oh my. Um, and we all three ended up in the hospital. I didn't have the nerve to tell the guys and the girls that were with us, a couple of people that worked at the nightclub, that we got hit so hard that the right wheel was hanging over the edge of the roadway with, let's just say it was a cliff. Oh my. <laughs> You're up at 7,000 feet and there wasn't much below us. Um, but I had some serious problems from that. Um, and I went, we came back, the lead singer had a uh, couple of broken vertebrae that uh, the drummer who was driving got his hips, uh, legs crushed a little bit when the front of the van was pushed up into him in the driver's seat. Um, and so took about four months off of that to recover, went back out on the road, tried to reform the band. We were out, we were back doing the circuits again, the hotel lounges and nightclubs, and something happened and I got sick again. Um, apparently some of the medications that had been given to me for the pain and the injuries that I'd suffered were starting to, shall we say, have an argument with my body. Mm -hmm. And I developed a, a condition known as Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which was essentially a severe allergic contradictory uh, reaction to the medications that were in my body for too long. And I ended up in the hospital again, this time for almost 10 days. Wow. First five days, first five days, they didn't even know what was wrong with me. I went in, went into the emergency room one week in between on our day off and it was mixed, misdiagnosed. I was sick the rest of the next week, still trying to perform on stage, went back. By the time they admitted me this time, my fever was 104.5. And they isolated me. Anybody that wanted to come in to see me had to basically wear a hazmat suit. They really had no idea what was going on until five days later, they finally found an answer, I guess, in their medical library. It took me off all the medications that they had already been giving me, which was making the condition worse. I won't go into too so many of the, uh, shall we say, less pleasant aspects of what was wrong with me. But I was in such bad shape when they tried to give me a, a shot of morphine to try to kill some of the pain, they bent the needle trying to put it, the needle into my body. Oh dear. Um, so I ended up on liquid morphine for a few days. And then when they finally figured out what was wrong, they took the morphine and everything else away, gave me a different medication. And five days later, I was basically okay. And the band had to call it quits. 
and I headed back to Ohio, dropping people off at their homes on the way as I passed them on the way back from from uh, upper north of the United States back towards the Great Lakes area. And uh, I went into another four-month recuperation, and that's basically when I was advised from more than one doctor that traveling and music and I were probably not going to make the best healthy choice that way. So I had to decide in late 1982 now, what was I going to do with my career? I knew I wanted to entertain still. I love performing. That's all I'd ever really done since I'd left high school. My major in college even was broadcasting, a way of entertaining. And I was using that voice live on stage. Matter of fact, in my music career, uh, back in the early 80s, before all this, uh, we were playing a, a Holiday Inn up in Michigan that literally the local radio station did a live broadcast from the Holiday Inn of the band once a week. And so I was the voice of that band whenever we were on radio that those nights. And so I was actually talking to how, now how many thousands and thousands of people in the local area that picked up that radio station. But before I left that town, I actually got an offer. If I wanted to leave the band, they wanted to turn their radio station into 24 hour and have me work midnight to six. I thought that was a nice compliment, but no music is where I wanted to be right then. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that moved on to there, but yeah, entertainment performing was what I wanted to do. So there were more than one, but a couple of people that meant something suggested, why not? You've got your tall, you're thin, you've got great posture. Why don't you check out what it would be like to be a model? Maybe not runway, but see what it's like. So the next, the best location I could think of that wouldn't put me too far away from home if anything happened again was Chicago. So I went to Chicago, checked into the Y, <laughs> very classic. Right. Um, very low cost, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do and not having a job. Well, I chose to learn about the industry. Education is number one in anything you want to do, knowledge. So I knew I didn't want to do Barbizon, but there was a place back in Chicago called John Robert Powers, now known as Powers International. Mm -hmm. um, so I enrolled in their program privately, not as a class, but privately, because I already had an entertainment background. I just needed to learn about Chicago and what the modeling industry really was like. Um, and I got, literally, it was a 10-week program. I was five weeks into it, once a week, five weeks into it, and the owner of the school approached me and asked me if I would become a teacher. That's a nice call. I said, sure, I, I, I could use the job. <laughs> and it was that connection by saying yes to something like that, that connection is what actually got me into my very first movie. Is a connection because his daughter was casting an American Playhouse movie for PBS. Now, I wasn't going in as a star, but I did. I went in just as a back then as a extra. Mm -hmm. That's all it was. I mean, it was like $25 for however long the day took. But while I was there, I kept, remember I talked going back to my book, The Professional, The Business. I wanted to learn everything I could. So instead of sitting in this big tent with another hundred or so extras, I set myself up outside, out of the way, where I could watch what was going on on set. 
I could see who was doing what and learn what. I mean, I had no idea about movies and how they were made. I heard somebody say, okay, this will be a rehearsal. All I could think about was theater. Why didn't they rehearse before they got here? But I learned very quickly. No, you in movies, you learn your lines. You come in because they shoot just certain portions of a scene. You rehearse it right then and there. The director says what he wants, and you turn around and you shoot it. Yeah, I imagine. So by learning that for yeah, because in movies you're going to be you know in, in theater you're all you know where you're going to be. You're going to be on the same stage for everything. But in movies you're going to be all over the place. So if you're going to rehearse right. on location, you're going to do it right before you shoot. That makes a ton of sense. Right. So I, in a very short time, I learned how that process was working, at least that part of it. Well, while I was sitting out there and watching, I was away from everybody else because the extras weren't needed in this setup. One of the assistant directors came up to the person who was in charge of all the extras and said, we need somebody we haven't seen to be a security guard. We don't have any, we need a fresh face. And I happened to overhear them. And so in my most professional way, I just kind of held my hand out to get their attention. I said, not, hey, I'll do that. It was like, can I help you with that? You hear the difference? Right. And so it invites a response in which they said, oh, realizing somebody actually overheard them. Where where have you been? I said, well, you know where that crowd was over there? I said, I was at the back of it. I mean, literally like a row or two from the back of that crowd. And they said, okay, great. Well, take him. He, he's good size. Take him over. And they put me in a security guard outfit and they walked me up to the set. Now I'm looking out at the crowd that was... I was part of looking up at me like I'm one of the actors mm-hmm. and the cameras behind me and they're shooting the two principal characters down below. We're on a loading dock. I'm on the, I'm above them and they're down below on the ground looking up like they're look. This is a whole scene like the Chicago uh, stockyards and these two young men are looking for work. And so they needed a security guard in this particular scene to screen them and not let them cut in line. The first shot is of these two young men handing me up their paperwork. And then the strangest thing happened to me. I start to leave after they say cut, print, great, moving on, whatever it was they said. And I I started to leave and they said, oh, would you mind standing in for yourself? Totally new terminology for me. I had no idea what they were talking about. So I said, okay. What what's that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. They said, "Well, just stand just stand here exactly where you were at. The camera's going to go around over there, and we're going to shoot your close up." I had this Mr. Demille moment in my head. <laughs> the old classic Mr. Demille. I'm ready for my close up. Right, right, yeah. At, for a very brief moment, I got real nervous because <laughs> I really, like I said, this was my very first experience on a movie set. Did not know what was going on. I was just I had just agreed to be a part of a crowd, and now they're singling me out for something. You know, I hope I don't let them down. But it was exact. You know, they turned around. I stood there. I didn't have to do anything extra. All they had to show me was when you hand this paperwork back to these two men, just make sure you do it at this angle so you don't cover your face. And then you have to hand it to them and you have to point to make sure that they know they have to go to the back of the line. But you can't say anything. My first expression, my first experience of understanding production, we can't pay people to talk. If they talk, we have to give them a contract. They have to get paid more money. Mm-hmm. Budgets don't allow that for a lot of things. So this was my first experience of, oh, I can give them exactly what they want and not say anything. I did it. We took like, it was like two takes. They said, great. You were wonderful. Thank you. Go take a break. That's all I had to do. I could, I was, I was done for the day. They couldn't put me back out in the crowd. 
sure. my face was all over the screen. So I I went back and uh, sat what we call holding literally for the rest of the day. I got paid for the rest of the day and didn't even have to go back to set again. But that was their way of compensating me. Say, give them the rest of the day off. We'll pay them through the end of the day. You can have lunch and whatever else. It was also on that set of that movie that I first met Dennis Farina, who also came from Chicago. Again, what it was proving to me was I sat, I didn't just follow the crowd. I put myself in a position where I could learn, where I could learn what was needed, what goes on. It was a really great first experience. And so that's that was really my transition from the entertainment of music to being injured and sick and out of commission for better part of six months and then come at almost 12 months from the time the first accident happened until I ended up in Chicago and ended up into the modeling and the acting business. What an interesting journey. So you have created art in many different ways, as we've talked about. What is, what's your favorite? What are you proudest of? As far as creating art? Yeah, all the different modes that you have been created in. Music. Why? I still love to create music. Um, I believe that the human voice in itself is an instrument. Mm -hmm. It has different pitches. It can create different emotions. It can create love. It can create hatred, although I don't like the latter. It can create warmth. It can be cold. It can be soft. We don't hurt somebody. Or we can be louder to make a point. Music does not necessarily mean melodic notes of a piano or a musical instrument. It's sound and how we use it. So you were, um, shifting gears a little bit, you were a guest at Starbase Indie back in 2018. Oh, yes. Oh, we had a grand time that year, didn't we? We did indeed. What was your favorite thing about Starbase? The people, the, the crowds, the, the people that you get there, energy, uh, the energies, uh, the way they come across, the sincerity, your staff. You know, you ran the show that year was so well done, so professional. Um, and yes, I will say, though, if I had to pick a favorite moment or two, it was the after after hours at Barfleet. It's always <laughs> been one of my favorite times. The people are you don't let me start over with that. Mm -hmm. If our world could be one giant convention, people of a like mind like attitude, where we just naturally all get along. We know how to have fun, but not get out of hand. We know how to respect people without offending. You don't have to be politically correct because everybody's already that way in terms of we don't get offended from one little phrase or saying. We know how to heal if somebody does get a little offended or something because we didn't realize it. It is such its own little I want to call it an isolated world, but I don't want it to be isolated. There is it's nothing just a beautiful quite, experience. Yeah, there's nothing quite like a bar fleet party. <laughs> I have asked and, guests for years who've been at all of the conventions if they've ever, you know, experienced anything quite like it. And I've consistently heard, nope, not, there's nothing quite like that. <laughs> and I and as far as the bar fleet group itself, I was always honored to be a part of that at the event, um, but it was just another extension of those who attended the convention itself. And like everywhere else, you're going to have the little glitch, you know, the little mishap that goes on, whether it be between people or a situation. But 
it always gets corrected without violence, without harmful hurting. And of all conventions that I've ever been at, and Starbase India is uh, no different. The venues want you back because they realize what you bring to them in terms of money, business, and an atmosphere that they have never seen before in their lives. So what's next for you? What upcoming projects are you working on? Well, at this point, uh, due to some health issues, I am pretty much retired. I have had some offers for feature films. Nothing has been set in stone uh, the last few years with the pandemic, and I'm now calling it three years because it really kicked off in late 2019, even though it didn't really take hold for a while. Mm -hmm. People didn't want to believe it then, and they didn't want to believe it when it was full-blown, but I'm sorry, it was there. Right. Um, I've pretty much just backed away, start to enjoy my time, and uh, I'll let the offers come in. I don't really go looking for them. Uh, convention appearances, hopefully in my future, again, now that things are opening up once more. I did one event last year. We had a grand time. Everybody respected the protocols. Um, and I tested before I went in, I tested when I came out, uh, you know, the level of respect at these conventions that now exist even more than prior to COVID-19 and the pandemic. But I, I do look forward to more conventions. I love the fans. I love people. It's a big part of my existence, which is why I love entertaining and, and bringing joy into people's lives in whatever shape or form that may take, whether it's me as a human in human form, let me put it that way, whether it's me in human form or my natural habitat of the creatures and monsters and other aliens that I play. So we talked about this a little at the beginning, but remind our listeners where people can find you on the web. Okay, online, on the web world, my website is alienactor.com. It's a very colorful, uh, very informative website. Um, you can even, on that website, you can even see a short video of the uh, Guinness World Record presentation in Hollywood. There's a video there. Um, I will always have my upcoming appearances there. Currently, the two that I had listed there are from have been changed from dates to to be determined uh, because they've both both the events that I had up there plan to reschedule as soon as it's, they feel it's safe based on their areas uh, where they're at. Uh, you can find me almost anywhere else just by going to your favorite browser and search engine, which nowadays commonly is either Google or um, Fire, not Firefox. Uh, what's the one on, on Apple products? Safari. Um, just type in Bill Blair and make sure you put the word actor after it. If you just leave it as Bill Blair, you're still going to get that chief of police or whatever he is up in Toronto, Canada, because right. he yes. was a big, he was a big news item for a very, very long time. Um, but if you type Bill Blair actor, that will narrow the searches enough that I'll be 90% of the first two to three pages of results. And you'll yeah. find information on me from Facebook to Twitter, to Instagram, to uh, LinkedIn. Wikipedia, uh, news items, uh, the Guinness World Record, more than you probably ever want to know about Bill Blair, the <laughs> actor, but it's all out there for you. Enjoy it. And 
if you want to write to me, join me on Facebook. Um, I, I spend probably an hour and a half to two hours each day just personally staying in touch with the fans. I don't have uh, an assistant. I don't have anybody that runs my social media. If you're chatting with Bill Blair online, you're chatting with me. And you do a great job of staying in touch with your fans. That's one of the things you're really good at. Thank you. I, I, I really, it's important to me. Um, if it wasn't for the fans, and I've said this time and time again, and I will say it here as well, it's because of the fans and the people that may not know who I am, but have still watched the shows that I have been on. It's because you watch those shows that I have been able to have such a wonderful career in this industry. Because if shows don't get watched, they get canceled. And a canceled show means an actor doesn't have a job again. So for all those years, from the time I was on Alien Nation to all five years of Babylon 5 and a couple of their movies, to Star Trek Deep Space Nine, to Voyager, to Enterprise, to shows like Charmed and X-Files, and uh, out of makeup on shows like The Division and Friends and Frasier and Curb Your Enthusiasm. You can look me up on IMDb. There's a, a exhaustive list of a lot of the shows that I've been over my years and the characters in the episodes. I never realized how many people actually were such fans of NCIS that have been messaging me over the years, having seen me in that episode as an actual character. Um, and it, actually, I got the backstory of that. I got that job on NCIS because the director was apparently at least a closet fan of Star Trek because they needed somebody that obviously they were going to have to do a head cast of that could lay still, take a fall, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And for the interview, they said, first of all, we need a picture that's at least 20 years younger than you. When you, hopefully you've got a really old headshot of yourself that looks like you do almost today, but maybe not quite. I took that picture in. Well, actually, I took in two older pictures of myself when I was at least 20 years younger. And then because I knew it was going to involve the head casting and everything else of special effects makeup, I took with me a Cardassian and a Klingon uh -huh. to show them the difference. She saw the Cardassian and it was like her decision was made right then and there. They let everybody else go and said, I want to work with you. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, it's different connections can come from interesting, interesting angles. And something else, we talk about people wanting to get into the business. Let me touch on one other point, what I said about the professionalism and the connections. Mm -hmm. I was messaged once about what I like to be in a movie this person was working on. She happened to be in the wardrobe department. And I said, sure. Uh, she said, great. I'll check it out and get back to you. And long story short, I ended up with a principal role in the Oscar winning movie, Argo. Oh, wow. As the, as the blue eyed humanoid robot. And it was such a character that the director, Ben Affleck, even chose to feature me in one scene that we were all headed into the Beverly Hotel in slow motion, walking across the valet entrance. Mm -hmm. It's I, I mean, when I saw that movie and he here he is shooting me solo in character as this robot in slow motion. It was just like that's the first time I'd ever seen myself like that in a movie. Everybody picked up on that when they when they saw the movie. I even had people write to me. So we were in the theater and I literally jumped out of my chair and said, that's Bill. I know him. That's um, cool. But most actors 
think that you have to go through, quote unquote, an audition process. So you have to have an agent. Agent gets you the audition. You go to the audition, you go to a callback and all this. I mentioned the gal was wardrobe. I worked with her on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. She knew what I could do. She was now the right-hand gal to the lady as the costume designer for Argo. Because she knew me, she could go to her designer and say, look, I got somebody I know that could do this if you want. You know, we'll, we'll, he'll fit the costume just fine. I ended up with a principal role in an Oscar-winning movie without even having to audition because somebody knew what I could do. The power of connection. Right. And that's why I say it comes from the professionalism. If I had been somebody on Star Trek that just came in, put the costume on, it's like, oh, this doesn't fit or this is too hot. Let me do this. Any kind of complaining, any kind of not following directions, not hitting my mark when I'm supposed to. So they have to do another take because it was my mistake. That wouldn't have worked. She wouldn't have thought about me. So we're back to just a little bit full circle of you want to get in the industry, be professional. Be on time, hit your mark, whether it's on the floor or greeting the director or the producer or somebody in the right way. And there's, like I said, I'm probably someday, I'm probably going to write a second edition of that book and update it because instead of talking about answer machines and notepads and Rolodexes and everything else, I'll be talking about cell phones and computers and online casting. As it stands, uh, it's kind of a yeah. historical document for how the business was at that time. Yeah. Yeah, it really has evolved, especially since the pandemic. It's evolved even more so. And I'm I'm grateful I got into it when I did, because I talk to young actors now, even some that I was working with, you know, five years or six years ago. And what they're having to go through now just to work on a set to, you know, audition without even going into it. You hear these things now about self-tapes. You actually have to do your audition at home. You don't even go into a casting office anymore for a lot of them. You now have to be your own cameraman, your own casting director in the room with you. You have to get somebody to read with you if it's a two-person or three-person scene. We're back to that whole thing. If you think of yourself as a production company of one, you'll know how to do all of these different jobs. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, it's been a joy. I've... uh, had so much fun at Starbase Indy, and you were a big part of that. And to ask me to be on this show with you, another great honor. Uh, uh, the respect you show me is, is just transcends all goodness, and I thank you. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indy podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindy.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.